So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to begin today in the, uh, the last part of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, and then we will move on into chapter 5 together. Um, I told you when we started this series, it's a pastor writing to his people, and he is encouraging them in their faith. He's encouraging them to stay true to the grace that God has called them to and not to go back to their works, not try to do things to impress God or to make up for their sin or to somehow work their way back into the presence of God. And one thing that the writer of Hebrews continues to remind us is that Jesus has done everything necessary for you and I to be in in an intimate relationship with him. Um, He's going to move us today into this this, uh, description of the high priest and how Jesus is our great high priest. And and, and I can almost hear this pastor just calling out to his people and, and asking them, if, if they would, to just kind of close their eyes and think about the, the greatest high priest that they had ever known. To think about the, the high priest that was their favorite, their most, the most faithful high priest that had ever served in their day and their time, and to picture that person in their mind. And, and these people knew their high priest. They knew who they were. And, and, and I'm sure as, as people have their favorite pastor and their favorite ministers, that, that these guys had their favorite. A priest, and, and, and I imagine he would ask them to think about the one that was faithful to God, true to God's word, and yet at the same time, compassionate toward them, understanding toward them, kind and considerate, who understood their weaknesses and who understood their, their struggles and, and who would go before the Lord and plead their case before God and represent them well. And I can imagine as this pastor's calling them to, to imagine who that person would be, then he would say to them, But Jesus far exceeds even your favorite. He goes beyond the one that could represent you well, the one who would plead your case before the Father. He's he's, he's better than the one who would take sacrifices in before the Lord. Jesus is so much better and so much more. What he's going to show us in these passages in the next several weeks, because as we turn the corner here, he's going to move us into this description of the high priest and show us how that everything the high priest did in the Old Testament, Jesus did even better in the New Testament. And, and, and he's going to show us how Jesus surpasses any priest that they could have ever known or ever met. And he doesn't just give them his opinion. It's not just this writer of Hebrews saying, let me give you my opinion. But he, he supplements that and he supports that through the, the quotation of Old Testament Psalms and, and other passages out of the Old Testament where he says, this is not just what I think, but this is what God said. And this is what God did to prove this point. He shows us how that Jesus not only met all the expectations and qualifications of a high priest, but Jesus far exceeded everything that an earthly high priest could do. And then he says this, he says, and this high priest that I'm describing to you, this one that God has appointed, this one that that God has affirmed, he is our high priest as the people of God. Jesus didn't just go into the Holy of Holies for you as your earthly high priest would do. He takes you with him into the Holy of Holies. He invites you to come into the Holy of Holies and to enjoy all that he has made possible. He calls us to draw near to God, but we only do that through Jesus' name. So he says that we can come before God, and here's the cool part, that we can come into the presence of God, and unlike those Old Testament high priests who would rush into the presence of God, make an offering, sprinkle the blood, and then get out, we are invited to come and to remain in the presence of God. 
That's what Jesus does for us. And so today what begins to happen in this book of Hebrews is that we kind of turn a corner, if you will. He's been telling us all the reasons why we need to make sure that we don't fall away, that we don't pull back, that we don't uh, try to combine grace and works. And, and he reminds us of all the dangers of, of, of not acquiring this salvation that Jesus offers us. And, and he, he says, he goes kind of from the negative. Hey, look, don't miss out. Don't drift away. And today he turns the corner and says, let me tell you the positive. So I've been warning you of of the negative if you do, but let me remind you of the positive that occurs when you draw near to God and when you come into his presence. He's going to turn that corner today and begin to, to show us what it means to come near to God and how we get there, what it means to enter into God's presence and how we can stay there. He's going to come back and, 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 and tell us to come and get as close as you can and don't come afraid but come as a wanted child of God is this the writer is saying Jesus doesn't just save you from hell but Jesus offers you life full and free here and now he doesn't just yank you from the flames but he invites you into his presence and in a real way what we're going to see here is that this writer of Hebrews begins to describe for us the fact that Jesus is going to restore everything that sin has destroyed. We're going to look back at, at the end of this message today at, at what took place when, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and, and how that Jesus came to reverse that and how Jesus came to, to change that. And so uh, what's going to happen is we kind of see the, 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 the intent, the, the heart of Hebrews is really the next four or five chapters where he's led into it, built up to it, here's the heart, and then he's going to kind of uh, unpack all that at the end. So these next few chapters are going to be critical, but the writer's intent here in chapter 5 through 9 is to show us how that Jesus is our perfect high priest, how he does what no other priest could do, and how that Jesus restores what was lost in the fall with Adam and Eve. So let's look at chapter 4, beginning in verse 14. We'll finish up the last couple of verses here in chapter 4, and then we'll move into chapter 5. Uh, He's going to show us that Jesus' priesthood was unique, and it was far superior to any priest who had ever come before. And they'd had some great priests, and they'd had some rotten priests. They'd had some really, really good priests, and then they had some priests that that, that God just had to remove and to to take out of office. But but here he's going to kind of start with his main point. And when you were taking English classes and they were telling you how to write paragraphs and stuff, they would say, you know, let the first sentence of that paragraph be the, the, the point that you're wanting to do and then unpack it in the sentences that come behind that. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do here as he shifts the gears to the positive and begins to talk about Jesus as our high priest. He's going to give us his main point first. And then in chapter 5, he's going to unpack and prove why those things are true. And so let's look at the last few verses of chapter 4. He says this in verse 14. He says, since then, we have a, a great high priest. Not, not if we had a great high priest, but since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but rather we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace 
to help us in our time of need. So this is his main point of, of the passage is, is, is that we have this high priest and, and, and Jesus is, is, is everything that he's about to present as being true. And, and so that gives us confidence to hang on to this confession of faith that we have made in Jesus Christ. It gives us this confidence to, to trust in the grace that Jesus has offered us. And again, not to go back like we said in previous weeks where they were going back and trying to add to and supplement the grace of God with works. He's saying, I want to show you that Jesus is sufficient. He says some things here that, uh, that I think um, gives us some, some proof of what he's trying to say. He's, he's going to show us the similarities of Jesus' priesthood with the Jewish priesthood, but he's also going to show us the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over the Jewish priesthood. So again, he begins where he wants to end, and here in verse 14 he says Jesus is, is unique, he is superior, he is our great high priest. Verse 14, he says, since we have this great high priest who passed through the heavens. What's, what's he talking about? Well, Jesus, we know, came from heaven, right? So he passed through the heavens coming to earth. But, but Jesus did more than that. He also passed back from this earth through the heavens. And he talks about the heavens in, in plural. And the Jews of that day had a, a kind of a, 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 a not as good of a grasp, I guess, of outer space and all this kind of stuff that we do. But the Jews kind of viewed uh, the heavens in, in three different realms. They had the realm of the birds, where the birds would fly, the atmosphere around us where the birds would be. Then you had this realm of the, the stars and the sun and the moon and, and, and all of that we'd call outer space. And then this realm of the third heaven they would discuss that would be the place where God dwelt. And the writer of Hebrews is saying this high priest that we have, our high priest wasn't just chained to earth. He, he wasn't just limited to, 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 to our space that we live in, but this Jesus traveled through the heavens. He went you know, through the sky. He went through the, 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 the outer space. He, he has gone into the presence in the place, the abode of Almighty God. And so in a simplistic way, in the mind of, of the Jewish hearers of that day, he's saying this, this, this high priest that we have is not like the high priest that we've had in the past. He's not just fully human the way we are, but he is human and divine. In fact, he hints to that here in the way that he refers to Jesus. He says he is Jesus. That's his human name. That's Jesus in the flesh. But he's also the son of God, mixing then the the humanity of Jesus with the divinity of Jesus. And he's a 100% man and yet 100% God. And because of that, and because of what Jesus has done on our behalf, we can hold fast. We can, we can draw near uh, to God. We can not neglect, if you will, the confession that we've made, that his grace is enough. He says, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now, here's what he's trying to do. He's saying he's given us this high picture of who Jesus is and saying Jesus is God. And he's passed through the heavens and he is this God who is now in heaven. But the Stoics of that day would say, yeah, he, he may be God that's in heaven, but because he's in heaven, he is detached, he is unconcerned, he is unmoved, he is emotionless, he is just a God that is this stoic God that sits on his throne waiting for the day that he can judge us and send us to hell. And the writer of Hebrews says that's not accurate at all. That's not the kind of high priest that we have. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because Jesus lived in the flesh and he knows what it is to to battle temptation. He knows what it is to suffer and to grieve and to hurt. He knows what it is to laugh and to rejoice and the next minute to find out your friend's dead. 
Jesus knows and has experienced all the emotion and all the, 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 the trauma that comes with being in a human body. He's lived his life, this life on earth. And so he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He says, you know, who, who would face temptation more? Uh, he says, facing temptation is like walking into the wind. And a man that, 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 that walks upright into the wind is going to take the brunt of that wind. It's going to be hard. And he says, sometimes we think, well, Jesus was God and temptation wasn't that hard for him. But C.S. Lewis says, it's just the opposite. If you're a man walking upright into the face of something that's pushing against you, we as humans will walk that way for a while and then we fall. And that wind no longer pushes against us. It's only the one who pushes his way all the way through that knows the full extent of temptation and trials. And he says, and Jesus did that. Jesus didn't go a little way and then fall and succumb to temptation. Jesus went all the way. So he felt the full force of temptation in a way that you and I may never, ever feel that because so many times we fall short and we give up. And here he's saying that we have this high priest who sympathizes with our weakness He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Yet there is a difference. He was tempted and yet he did not sin. So therefore let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I don't know about you, but I I look at that and I go, okay, well, if Jesus is so perfect and he is so holy and he is God and he is there, how does that help me to draw near to the throne of grace? If anything, it makes me feel like, man, I'm so unworthy to even come into Jesus' presence now. The, the, the comfort that the sinners and the tax collectors and, and the prostitutes and everybody in Jesus' day on earth felt so comfortable coming to him, they felt so good being in his presence. Well, well man, now that he's completed it and done it perfectly and he's going to be back to the Lord, I don't know if I feel that same comfort coming into his presence. And the writer of Hebrews is trying to say he's still your high priest. He was then and he is now. And nothing has changed. And we can come into his presence with this confidence. And we can draw near to the throne of grace. So his greatness does not imply that he is distant. His greatness implies that he has made a way for you and I to come into God's presence and to be there with him. So this humanity and this divinity combined gives him the ability to to pass through the heavens. It gives him the ability to sympathize with our weakness and gives him this this love that just calls us to come near to a place that we were never allowed to come for. He is our sympathetic, our superior high priest. He not only represented us before God, but he invites us to come with him into the presence of God. Again, notice the difference between the Old Testament priest and what Jesus did. The Old Testament priest would come into the tabernacle or the temple and he would have to offer sins and sacrifices for himself first because he too was a sinner. And, and then he would, he would symbolically take the sins of the people into the Holy of Holies once a year for a very brief moment. And he would take with him the blood of bulls and goats and he would go into this Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant that was, was there with the, with the, 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 the wings of the, the, the cherubim over the top of it. And, and below it was this mercy seat. And he would go in... And he would confess before God the sins of the people and he would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and then he would get out as quick as he could. Come into the presence of God, fear and trembling, 
Offer the sacrifice, offer the blood, and then get back out and don't dare return for another year. But here's Jesus saying, I not only went in and sprinkled my blood, but now I invite you to come in here with me. The high priest of that day could have never taken anybody in there with him. But Jesus is a different kind of high priest. He's one who calls us to come with confidence. But listen, your confidence is not in yourself. We don't walk into the throne room of God saying, hey, God, here's Rob. I'm here. I'm confident. We come confident in what Jesus has done. Confident that that he has invited us. Confident that, that he has made the way for us to come into the presence of God. And our confidence is in him. And that allows us to draw near to the throne of grace. Look what Jesus did. He changed the judgment throne into a throne of grace for those who come through him. From judgment to grace, Jesus made that change. He says, at the throne of grace, we receive mercy and we find grace to help in our time of need. Is he talking about just eternity here? Are you going to have needs in eternity? When do we have our greatest time of need? Right now. Today, tomorrow, the next day, as we strive to live out our faith, as we strive to battle temptation, as we try to, try to, to, to live a life that, that points other people to Jesus, this is our time of need. And he says, we come now into the throne room of grace, and we get mercy, the withholding of God's wrath, and grace, the, the, the pouring out of God's blessings, and that helps us right now, in this day, and in this time. So Jesus turns that dreaded judgment throne into this throne of grace. He offers us mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Why? Because we've put our trust and our faith in the all-sufficient work of Christ, the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, the original readers would have had a question. How could Jesus be that kind of priest? Wasn't he Joseph's son? Wasn't he Mary's son? Wasn't he just a carpenter? turn prophet so what the writer of hebrews does is come back in chapter five and in the first 10 verses he gives us this understanding of how jesus could be our high priest the first four verses of chapter five he lays out the qualifications and and the requirements of of an earthly priest and then he comes back in verses five through ten and tells us how jesus meets and exceeds all of those qualifications so let's look at the first four verses of chapter five he says his earthly priesthood, it's, it's a priesthood that, that is set up and, and ordained and called and, 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 and watched over by God. Look what he says, chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen among men. So these are the high priests that were on earth from the lineage of, of, of Aaron, okay? When God called Moses and he appointed Aaron, then, then through the lineage of Aaron, all the priests then would flow out of that. So every high priest chosen from among men. So here's what we're learning. The high priest is chosen. Who chooses them? God would. Okay? They're chosen from among men, so they're human beings. They are appointed by God to act on behalf of men in relation to God. So what was the role of the the earthly priest? To go before God on behalf of the people. 
That was his job, to take the the blood and to sprinkle it on the mercy seat, to go before the Lord and offer sacrifices for the sins of man, to to do the animal sacrifices, to do the grain offerings, to do all those kind of things, to work in the temple on behalf of men before God, because men were not allowed to come back before the Lord. So here's the earthly priest. He is chosen. He is appointed. He he serves uh, on behalf of men in relation to God. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, the earthly priest, verse 2, can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward. Listen to the ignorant and the wayward. Those who don't know any better and those who know but just choose to go the other way. Think about that. The priest is called to represent both of those. And he can do it gently since he himself is beset with weakness. So what he's saying is, listen, these, these priests that have been serving you, they are human beings. They understand the frailties of human life. They, they themselves have been tripped up. They themselves have fallen short. They themselves know that they need grace and they need mercy, that they need their sins covered. They understand that because they too are sinners. And because of this, he says in verse 3, He, the the earthly priest, is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Again, when the high priest was ready to go into the Holy of Holies, the first thing he had to do was make sure that he was right with God. There was a sacrifice prescribed in the Old Testament that he had to offer for his own sins and then the sacrifice for the sins of his people. Just because he had the title of high priest did not absolve him of his sin, did not take away all that sin, did not atone for that sin. He had to make two sacrifices here. He had to sacrifice for his own sins first, and then he could represent the people before the Lord. And he says in verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself. In other words, it's, it's not just a, a pastor standing before the people saying, Hey, who'd like to be high priest this week, this year? Who's going to do that? Oh, I'll take a chance of that. And it was not. It was prescribed by God. It's not self-appointed. It's not a self-honoring thing. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the Old Testament, when Aaron began the priesthood, as God prescribed for him to do, there were those that rose up and said, you know, anybody can be a priest. We're going to do this. And God struck them dead. And God says, no, it's only the ones that I call and that I appoint. Well, anybody can do that. And God says, oh, no, you can't. That's not allowed. And so he's saying here in the same way, these priests didn't choose this role for themselves, but they were called by God just as Aaron was. Now that's the earthly priest. Now he's going to come back and say, let me show you how Jesus goes way beyond that. Just as the... The, the earthly priest didn't take that honor upon himself, he says in verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself. Remember in Philippians? Have the same attitude that in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who humbled himself and, 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 and went to the cross and died for you and I, and now God has exalted him higher above all others. So Jesus didn't exalt himself to be made a high priest. Jesus didn't come to earth with this great big ego and say, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm just going to make myself your high priest. That was not Jesus' doings. That was God's doings. He didn't exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by him, by God, who said to him, today you are my son, today I have begotten you. In other words, today you're my son, and today I am your father. 
He also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek. There's a whole section in chapter 7 we're going to get to in a couple weeks about Melchizedek. And who is this mysterious guy named Melchizedek? He's only mentioned twice in the Old Testament. And we don't know a whole lot about him, but the New Testament writers did. So there was this priest. He was called a priest of God. The first priest ever mentioned in the Old Testament is Melchizedek. He appears as Abraham is making his way following God with the, with the beginning of the covenant that God's established with Abraham. And as Abraham comes upon him, Abraham offers a tithe to this priest of God. He's also called the king of Salem. You're going, okay, what is the king of Salem? Salem was the ancient name for Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So he is the king of Jerusalem even before Abraham makes his way to Jerusalem. He is called the priest of God. So here we see this this foreshadowing. Remember how we've been saying all all the way through the book of Hebrews that you're going to be given a picture that points forward to the person of Jesus Christ. Well, here is Melchizedek who has a, a priesthood of God that's not of Aaron's lineage. Aaron hasn't even been appointed to be the priest yet. Aaron's not even born yet. Abraham and, and, and them haven't even had their children yet. And, and so this whole thing is about to evolve, but they're showing that there was a priest who came before the old covenant. A priest who was established, who was a priest king or a king priest. Who do you think that foreshadows? Jesus, who is our king of kings, our high priest who is the king of Jerusalem, the center of God's people. All these things in the Old Testament are going to be a foreshadow of what Jesus is in the New Testament. And so now we're introduced here in Hebrews to this figure called Melchizedek. And he will come back and unpack Melchizedek and how Jesus and Melchizedek have so much in common. Nobody knew where Melchizedek came from. And after the story of Abraham, nobody knows where Melchizedek went. So it would say about Melchizedek that he is this guy who had no beginning and had no end. Oh, who does that sound like? Any priest kings you know of that had no beginning and have no end? All of this is pointing forward to Jesus. So here he is turning this corner saying, if you think that that Jesus is not the high priest, he's not material to be your high priest. Or here's the other thing. Jesus didn't come through the lineage of Aaron. He came from the tribe of Judah. So someone look at Jesus, you can't be a priest, you didn't come through Aaron. And God's going to say he came through the lineage of Melchizedek, who was there long before Aaron ever showed up. Long before the covenant was ever made. So it's going to be interesting as we unpack that, but let's just say that there's this person called Melchizedek that's, that's introduced but, but Jesus is, is, is a priest forever. Again, Melchizedek, no beginning, no end that the people knew of. And Jesus is a priest after the order, not of Aaron, but after the order of Melchizedek. And in the days of his flesh, during the incarnation, as Jesus lived on earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Now stop right there. Jesus offers up prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears to God who is able to save him from death. So did God fail? Because Jesus died. 
Was Jesus asking the Father to spare him of death? Was God begging and crying and pleading and and loud cries and supplications for God to keep him from going to the cross? Well, Jesus says, no, that's the reason I came, was to go to the cross. Here's what Jesus was pleading for. God, don't leave me in the grave. That's the death he's talking about. Not don't let me die. That's why I came. I came to die. But don't leave me in the grave. He's talking about the resurrection. So he prays to the Father and he asks him, the Father who's able to save him from death, to raise him from the dead. And guess what? He was heard. His prayer was answered. When? On that third day, that Sunday morning. And he was answered, his prayer was answered because of his reverence for the Lord. Jesus is our high priest. Look what he says. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So many people get hung up on this idea. If I'm a Christian, why does God let me go through pain? Why does God let me suffer? Why is it that that if, if I'm trying to live my life for God, I go through so much agony trying to live out my faith? Why is that? If God loves me, then why would he let his child suffer? Jesus could have asked that same question. But look what he says. He says, even though he was a son, he learned obedience. He learned to practice or to prove his obedience through what he suffered. How did Jesus prove to be obedient? By avoiding all temptation? No, by overcoming it. How did he prove himself to be faithful? By going all the way, not just partway and then falling short. But Jesus stayed in the face of that strong wind of temptation and he pushed all the way through to death. And in so doing, proved his faithfulness through what he suffered. And being made perfect. Let me, let me pack that, unpack that just a minute. Being made perfect, it makes it sound like Jesus was sometime not perfect, right? If he had to be made perfect, then he was not perfect. And, and so we've got to understand what that term meant. He's not saying that Jesus was imperfect, but yet he was made perfect through his works. He's saying that Jesus was, was, uh, was made or, or, or proven pure. Uh, he was made the perfect priest. He was, he, I guess the best way to say it would be this. He met every requirement of priesthood. That's what it means. Through what he went through. He met every requirement, and he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus is the source of eternal salvation for everyone who obeys him, for everyone who follows him. He, you know, the, the, the question was asked to Jesus one day, what are the works that I must do to have eternal life? And Jesus says this, simple, believe in me, believe in me. That's the works that the Father requires. And that's all that we're asked to do is to put our faith and our trust in Jesus and in him alone. And so here in, in, in chapter 5, we see him describe these, these earthly priests as people who are chosen, appointed, who give sacrifices and, and offerings to God, who are sympathetic to those that, that they represent, who, who had to sacrifice for their own sins and then the sins of the people, and, and that this honor was not self-bestowed but was bestowed by God. Now we see in chapter 5 that Jesus is similar, yet he is superior. 
He didn't exalt himself to that position. He was appointed by God. Jesus was affirmed by God as being the Son of God and and this eternal priest forever in the line of Melchizedek. Uh, Jesus is, 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 is seen as the, the fulfillment of the picture, to, to have the picture of Melchizedek and then the person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is seen as being the restorer of all things. He comes in the priestly line of Melchizedek, not in Aaron. Melchizedek, who is forever Aaron, who dies and has to be replaced. The writer of Hebrews will unpack in the next few chapters how that that earthly priest would would, would serve in their lifetime but then die and have to be replaced. And and their offerings had to be done every single day because those offerings were just a temporary covering for the sins of mankind. That this this day of of, of atonement, this Yom Kippur, had to be done every single year because God required that. But it never was satisfying the wrath of God. It never satisfied the, the debt of our sin. And so it had to be repeated again and again and again. But Jesus comes and he does it once and for all. He's our sympathetic priest. He experienced the struggles of life. He had to know what it was like to depend upon his father to obey his father, to battle the temptations and the trials and the sufferings. But Jesus succeeded where every other person had failed. And he became the source of our eternal salvation to all who obey and all who believe his claims. So Jesus was designated by God to be our high priest forever. Verse 10, he was designated by God as that high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's two ways that Jesus um, uh, was superior to the Old Testament priest. Number one, he didn't have to offer a sacrifice for his own sins, right? Because Jesus was perfect. There was only one sacrifice Jesus needed to offer, and that was not for his sins, but for our sins. And Jesus' sacrifice was not one of many. It was the one sin, the one sacrifice, if you will, for all, never again to be repeated. These places that teach that you need a priest to offer sacrifices for you, that you need a priest to make confession before you, that you need a priest to, to go before the Lord in order to make you right with God, that is not biblical at all. To better understand what Jesus accomplished, I think we need to go back to the Garden of Eden And look at what was destroyed and what was done and then what Jesus comes to to reverse. We go back to the Garden of Eden. You know the story of creation that God creates man and woman, places them in a garden, tells them there's one thing they can't do and that's the one thing they do do. And so God shows up and man begins to blame woman and woman begins to blame the serpent and, and, and God expels them from the garden, from his presence where he would come and dwell with them. And walk with them and fellowship with them. And God expels them from the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we'll put that on the screen for you. Look at these verses. He says, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden, man and woman, out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So man is expelled from the garden. The garden was the place where God met with him. It's a symbol of the presence of God. So man was pushed outside the presence of Almighty God. And it says he drove the man, drove out the man, and at the east garden, that was where the entrance was, he placed a cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. 
So God says, look, you're, you're, you're now going to be cast outside the garden, outside the, 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 the presence, the fellowship of, of Almighty God. And then God places a cherubim there with a flaming sword to guard the entrance so that man cannot re-enter into that fellowship. And then Jesus comes. So from the time of the garden till the time of Christ, man is not allowed to enter into the presence of God. Only the high priest could go into the presence of God, and that only once a year. And that for just a very brief moment to offer a sacrifice for the sins that the people had committed that past year. So all this time, man's excluded from this intimate relationship with God. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus goes through the heavens, the writer of the Hebrews says. He doesn't enter into a man-made tabernacle, to a man-made temple. He doesn't go into the man-made holy of holies. All of those things were a pattern or a picture, Scripture says, of the real heaven, the real place, the real throne room of God. But in this earthly throne room, you remember there's a mercy seat in there, right? The Ark of the Covenant that's got the three things inside it. It's got the, the mercy seat. And then above the mercy seat, what do you see there? The cherubim. Ho oh, ho, here they are again. Guarding this presence of God. And yet scripture says that Jesus went and sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. And in every real way, you've got this picture of these cherubim guarding the presence of God, keeping mankind out. And Jesus steps up and rips the veil and takes the place of the cherubim and says, come on. What has kept you from the presence of God no longer keeps you from the presence of God because I've dealt with that. It's done. And you are not only welcome, but you are encouraged to come. These cherubim, they were to place at the entrance to, to deny entrance. Jesus now, according to the New Testament, is the gate, the door, the way. And here's what Jesus says. It, it, it's not that everything's just blown wide open and, and, and anybody can come any way they want to come. Jesus steps up and now he says, I am the door. But I'm inviting you to come. And if you will come through me, you can have access to the Father. In fact, in John chapter 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What does he say? No one gets to the Father except through the cherubim? No. Except through the angels? Except through saints? No. Except through me. The cherubim are no longer needed. Why? Jesus is the way. And no one gets to the Father except through Jesus. He's our high priest. He went in and made atonement for us, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood in the heavens, not just in the earthly temple. And now he stands at heaven's gate, if you will, and he says, come. Come unto me, all you who are weary and are heavy laden. Come unto me and find rest for your souls. And that's the call of Jesus. Jesus is there, the door, the gate, the way, inviting us to come through him into the presence of God. To re-enter the presence of God through the way that Jesus opened up for us. And he says, guys, come and find grace. Come and find mercy for your time of need. The cherubim's message was stay out. Stand clear. Don't approach. Jesus' message is come. Come now. Come into this relationship with me. Come near. 
Don't, don't just learn about the facts, though. Here's what we, I say we, here's what I tend to do. I look at the facts and go, well, okay, Jesus is a high priest. That's really cool. Look at the heart behind the high priest. What would cause him to, to want to do what he's done? So don't just look at the facts and say, okay, the fact is Jesus is my high priest. Check that one off. I got that, I got that locked in. Jesus is a high priest. Ask the question, why would Jesus do that? See and feel and experience the heart behind his priesthood. What kind of a heart would pursue rebellious, sinful enemies of God and invite them to experience grace and mercy instead of judgment and hell? What kind of heart would do that? The heart of your great high priest. What kind of heart would want us to all its provisions in this life and in the next life the heart of your great high priest what kind of a heart would call us to come near after we spent our whole life wandering away it's the heart of our great high priest what kind of a heart sympathizes with man's weakness And then intercedes on his behalf in the presence of the Father that we might overcome those things and glorify God. It's the heart of our high priest. And what kind of a heart would suffer in our place so that we could live forever in his place? That's the heart of our high priest. What kind of a priest would do this and could do this? The writer of Hebrews will tell us there's only one who would and one who could. And his name is Jesus, the Son of God. Let me ask you this as we close today. How can you remain indifferent about a high priest who loves you that much? Who who not only said, okay, I need to do this for them, but then actually got up and left his throne room and did it for us. Here's the neat thing. The Old Testament priests, they would walk into the Holy of Holies, they would sprinkle the blood, and they would get out. What does Scripture say Jesus did? He entered the Holy of Holies, he sprinkled his blood, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, come on, come near. Come confident that what I did is enough, that you don't have to prove yourself, that you don't have to have grace plus your works, that you have nothing left to prove. I've done it all for you. How can we remain indifferent toward that kind of love? How could we settle for something less than that kind of love? And finally, where would you hope to find a greater high priest than that. There's not one. And he wants to be your high priest today. I don't know if you've ever begun a relationship with Jesus Christ. I don't mean do you know who Jesus is. He's this historical figure who lived a few years and then died on a cross and was buried. And they say he, just, you know, he was resurrected. I don't, I don't mean do you know the facts. I mean, have you gotten to know the heart of this God who left it all to pursue you and to bring you back to the Father, to open up a way back into the garden where you can enjoy the presence of God 
the joy of being a child of God. Do you know that God in a way that's changed who you are? Because if you haven't, today he calls you and he says, I am your high priest. I have represented you before the Father and I have made a way for you to come. All you need to do is to come through me. All you need to do is to agree that what I did is enough and that I did it for you. And if you and I will do that, then we too can come near and we can come now into the presence of God. Never again to be expelled. Never again to be shut outside the presence of God. Do you have that kind of relationship with Jesus today? I'm not asking if you're religious. I'm asking, do you know Jesus as your high priest? The one who made the sacrifice on your behalf. If not, today is the day you can hear him call and say, come. Come, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You've got to come through me if you're going to get to the Father. Let's pray.